0: For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use. But the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. Today, we're thrilled to have Crispin Blunt, a member of Parliament in the UK, joining us. Mr. Blunt also founded the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group and serves as its chairman. I'm always excited to talk to conservative people who have changed their minds on drug policy, and Mr. Blunt's perspective is unique because he's decided to be very public about his change of mind while he's still in office. We talk about that in the show today and about why he feels that legalization is consistent with his values. This interview is also our final episode of the End of For Good podcast for now. We've had great feedback from listeners, but we've decided that we need to streamline our work a little bit. And that means pausing some of our endeavors to give us time to grow other ones. All of our previous episodes will still be available on our website and in iTunes and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And if you're already connected to us on social media, uh, thank you. If you're not, you can find us at MS, and you can find me at Christina B. Dent. If you're not signed up for our emails, go to enditforgood.com. You can do that at the bottom of the homepage. And if you want to be part of our advocacy community, inviting other people to change their minds too. Go to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and then minutes. And you can join Two Minutes for Good, which is our weekly group. Uh, we send out an email every week uh, giving them something that they can do in two minutes or less to spread the message and invite more people to the conversation. So... Um, Some people say, I want to help, I just don't know what to do. So Two Minutes for Good is uh, the way that you can do that as part of the End It for Good community. So you can head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes and sign up for that. On to our guest. Mr. Blunt served as an Army officer reaching the rank of captain. He was elected to Parliament in 1997 and spent several years as the Minister for Prisons, Probation, and Youth Justice, which is where his journey took an unexpected turn. Here's my conversation with MP Crispin Blunt. Welcome, Mr. Blunt. Thanks so much for joining us today on the End It For Good podcast. Um, not at all, Christina,
1: very very, very nice to uh, to be with you. And uh, thank you very much for your, for your interest in the work we're doing over here in the UK.
0: Yeah, so I would love to hear, um, and for our audience to hear how you got interested in this because um, I always talk about myself as sort of not a typical person that's, that's talking about drug policy reform. I'm you know, conservative, I'm a Christian. Um, And you also are not sort of a a typical person to be talking about it. You're a member of parliament, but you're um, conservative also. And you've had some experiences that kind of changed how you thought. So tell us a little bit about your background and um, what, what has gotten you onto this issue as an important piece of what needs to happen to make our world a better place.
1: Well, I see myself as having an incredibly conventional uh, background. Uh, Third generation. Uh, soldiers, so both my grandfathers were professional soldiers, they spent their entire careers in the army, as did my father, Uh, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had discovered uh, history and then current affairs and politics at school, so I did have in the back of my mind by the time I left school and immediately joined the army that uh, one day I might want to become a politician. Um, uh, But my Uh, background in that sense was was utterly conventional certainly in the approach to uh, anything illegal uh, which would have imperiled both uh, the objectives of uh, being a soldier and uh, also uh, any career in politics Um, so those things were very firmly eschewed now uh, the army like Uh, uh, other institutions like journalism and everything else. It's actually quite quite a hard drinking profession. Um, And so a a legal drug called alcohol uh, played a a cheerful part in my life. Um, But certainly no question of having anything to do with illegal drugs. Um, And uh, my career progressed. I'd spent uh, 12 years in the army and then I left in order to uh, try my hand in politics and was uh, successful in getting elected um, age 36 in 1997 and uh, that was as a conservative uh, on the day that Tony Blair won a landslide victory for Labour and it took 13 years for the Conservatives to form a government in 2010 in coalition with the Liberals and David Cameron as Prime Minister um, asked me to join his government as the Minister for Prisons, Probation and Youth Justice um, and uh, all I had uh, which I did with enthusiasm, and I actually thought our policy um, around the rehabilitation of offenders was a really exciting um, part of the conservative proposition in 2010, um, talking about trying to get uh, prisons themselves uh, to uh, be responsible for what happened to their graduates and that their reoffending behavior. Um, uh, after their term of incarceration, if if a an institution could drop the overall rate of reoffending by doing the right things um, with people in prison to make them less likely to offend afterwards, because the reoffending rate is absolutely terrible, um, they would then be rewarded in in some way. And so, trying to make a system of so-called payment by results um, delivered through the criminal justice system and uh, It's an area of immense interest as to how you make people better um, and less likely to offend. Well, of course, uh, that requires an interest in why they're offending in the first place. And then some horrific statistics then became uh, clear that about half of acquisitive crime in Britain is committed by people trying to feed their addiction. And if they weren't addicted to drugs that we have made illegal um, they wouldn't be needing to steal, mug, burgle, um, shoplift uh, in the way that is delivering half of a crime associated with um, uh, desperate people trying to find uh, the resources to feed their addiction. And so uh, I would see really good example of integrated, what's called integrated offender management, where you had the police, obviously dealing with people at large on the streets, Working with the prison service and working with the probation service. Uh, so once people had been uh, convicted and then uh, under licence of the probation service and uh, doing their term of sentence in prison, trying to find a way for all three services to work t- together to make it less likely that people would offend. And one of the most difficult areas was then uh, for people to get clean of drugs it's uh, immensely challenging people with even some of the best rehabilitation programs under drugs might take 10 goes to get uh, clear of heroin and they'll fall off the uh the rehabilitation pathway um and so how do you make it uh how do you keep people who are t- trying but then fall off and have to go and again get and commit another crime Uh, to feed their habit. How do you, what's a sensible way of trying to uh, get people uh, back on the path to a a, a clean life where they're not uh, inflicting uh, victimization on others in society? And then I began to look at the in prison uh, to see what we did with addicts in prison. The most wretched experience of all in the 70-odd prisons I visited whilst I was a prisons minister, we're seeing a queue of uh, emaciated men, largely queuing up to get their methadone, their heroin replacement treatment, which they could get in jail, and the nurse dealing and stuff out like, and putting the pill under their tongue to make sure they didn't then go back to their cell and trade it on the wings, um, uh, whilst at the same time understanding that uh, prisons are not hermetically sealed environments, and there's a, a frankly a a shed load of uh, drugs largely available in our prison system that comes over the walls, comes inside prisoners, into, into jails, comes in with uh, uh, crooked uh, uh, prison officers or who prison officers who've been with the immense amount of money available to, uh, to the illegal drugs market uh, have been corrupted. And my eyes began to get open to the, the whole system. Uh, of uh, our management of illegal or drugs that we had chosen to make illegal in society. And uh, I proposed at a meeting of my ministerial colleagues, a p- political meeting, um, to say, look, we ought to be asking um, uh, questions of our officials and discussing the merits of our current policy. Because our current policy... Um, uh, was presiding over, in those days, I think was at least 10 billion pounds worth of a criminal industry and damage to society, was driving half of acquisitive crime in the UK. And it just might be possible that there was a better way of doing this. And uh, one of my colleagues, who was also served in the Home Office, I said, we couldn't possibly have that conversation Um, because the slightest suggestion that we might be reconsidering or thinking about the prohibition of uh, 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 illegal drugs would suggest that the government's will was weakening, uh, and uh, if that got out, um, then what would happen? Well, of course, what would happen was already happening. Um, Our our drugs laws are uh, largely held in contempt, certainly in relation to cannabis in the, in the United Kingdom, because most people knew that cannabis was a great deal less harmful to them than alcohol, a drug which is quite a uh, significantly dangerous drug to people. Um, but most people have learned how to use alcohol, uh, use it perfectly safely. Um, as Churchill said, get a great deal more out of it than it gets out of them and acts as a social lubricant in most circumstances and, and people enjoy great quality of products that the whiskey industry, the wine industry, the beer industry um, uh, produce and we celebrate the quality of those of those of those industries. Um, And indeed in terms of the United Kingdom we make determined efforts to promote Scotch around the world um, as a a great British product. Uh, But what we seem to have forgotten um, is what happened when Uh, The United States prohibited alcohol in 1919 and then for 15 years had to live with a prohibition of just one drug, alcohol, and the consequences for the whole of society were catastrophic. It Produced the mafia, um, uh, who then were were the, the, the criminal supply chain, were the only people who could supply alcohol. Or if you were singularly unwise, you decided to distill your own industrial spirit at home and you would all, all probability poison yourself um, with the product that you were making. And the number of people in the States who died of poisoning from industrial spirits um, uh, uh, were obviously enormous. And there is a very precise parallel uh, between the prohibition of alcohol and the awful consequences in the United States, which is why it was reversed, and the prohibition of all narcotic drugs in 1961 which the world then uh, signed up to and uh, 60 years later or 50 years later in terms of when i was the prisons minister uh, the consequences of that prohibition have been visited out on uh, uh, societies and the uh, harder the state tried to fight a war on drugs the worse they made the problem and Uh, So uh, I saw that, uh, the consequences of that as Prisons Minister and found that we weren't even allowed to discuss the possibility of having a different approach. And that's when um, I came to the conclusion that that discussion had to be had and we needed to have this conversation uh, around prohibition as a central issue. But we also then needed to discuss all the different side issues. As the consequences uh, of uh, that drugs policy, um, that have led us to the place that we're in today.
0: So that's uh, very similar, I guess, to a lot of the people that I've talked to have changed their mind. It's kind of sort of a um, coming to the conclusion that that you know certainly drugs can be harmful, but that their prohibition is far more harmful than the drugs are on their on their own. It's not making things. Uh, better it 's actually making things far worse, so the very first discussion that I um, led that was kind of my it was like twelve people in a, a side room at a restaurant talking about this, and their million dollar question that they all asked was, Why do we keep doing it this way if it 's not working For most of them they said i didn 't know it wasn 't working, but now that I understand what 's happening, I know it 's not working surely there 's people you know, in, in who are leading things that know it's not working, why aren't they doing something about it? Why do we keep doing it this way? What do you think is the inertia? What's pushing that inertia that's keeping us from recognizing what's happened, that it hasn't made things better, and actually changing well, it?
1: Well, what is safe for politicians? What's safe for politicians is to sit on their moral high ground and go, drugs are bad, they are banned that is a safe moral position to take. Um, And indeed, drugs can be uh, 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 dangerous. Um, uh, However, uh, what they then do, sitting on their moral high mountain, is ignore the consequences of what's then going on in the valleys below as a consequence of that policy. And the consequence of that policy is handing a $500 billion a year global industry into the hands of organised crime, um, of a uh, then a criminal supply chain to meet uh, humanity's demand for products that make them themselves feel better and feel better about themselves and give them the experiences that they uh, uh, that they want. Um, and that is an industry which can't protect its market share except with violence and extortion and uh, coercion, and which is why in Mexico over the last few years, 30,000 people a year roughly have been killed in the wars between drug cartels. They've not died of drugs in Mexico, they've died of drugs policy um, because the supply chain has no, is, is uh, gifted by policy into the hands of criminals. And that was the position, of course, in the United States in the 1920s when the supply of alcohol was gifted um, uh, to the Mafia. And it was obviously a gift from God for the Mafia. And they were then on the side of most people who just wanted to drink, um, and so you're, the whole respect for law um, was then uh, undermined because you most people would then find themselves in a conspiracy against the police um, because the police were having to uh, deliver a policy that was deeply, deeply unpopular, um, and so uh, you've therefore got a position um, uh, where the politicians are safe. Um, And then have made themselves immune, uh, chosen to make themselves immune uh, to the consequences uh, of the policy, uh, and have not been prepared to get off their moral high mountain and engage in the rather grubby business then of having to make a compromise position of treating drug use as a difficult, challenging public health policy, but get it out of the moral clarity of making a criminal justice policy. And the deep frustration that I feel is that there is a Global Commission on uh, Drugs Policy uh, decorated with some of the most distinguished former heads of government and heads of state um, of nations around the world, all of whom have decided to go public on this issue after they could be in office. Um, Well, we actually need politicians to engage with this whilst they're in office and actually begin the review of a global policy Um, uh, led unhappily by the United States of America in 1961, um, with its attendant racist implications about the uh, conditions in uh, the United States at the time, uh, about a part of the uh, federal uh, enforcement authorities who at that stage were looking for a job. Um, And the whole background uh, background to where the world got to on drugs policy, is in some ways deeply shocking about how, how a policy has been formed in this area on a, on any on a moral basis, but it's the it's the sort of uh, morality of uh, drugs are bad, they are wrong, and then not going beyond that simplicity and not being prepared to address the you know the the, uh, the necessary more difficult compromises to get to a policy that is um, as we've cheerfully managed to do with alcohol. Um, which is a drug, which is uh, certainly infinitely better um, uh, even accepting the public health challenges of people who get into a mess with alcohol. It's quite a lot of people and it does quite a lot of damage. Um, however, that damage is as nothing compared to the damage that would be done if we chose to make it illegal.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the great point about people coming out after they're out of office. Um, yeah, and support of legalization. That's a perpetually frustrating thing, I think, for all of us that are working on drug policy issues is you have all of these people who had immense amount of influence um, in the offices that they held. And often it's not until they leave those offices that they then become it, uh, public about their there, support for legalization. But,
1: there, but, uh, but there, is a, there is a personal issue to this. I've been wrestling with this because one of the reasons I could, I suppose get on my moral high horse and say, hang on, we need to do something about uh, drugs policy, is I went straight from school into the army and I never did anything. I'm I'm constantly, perhaps fearful, about the implications of breaking a law of my future if I wanted an elected office. Uh, Never did anything, uh, tried to avoid desperately doing anything wrong, certainly not taking drugs that are illegal, particularly when there was this unbeveled cheerful drug alcohol which I could take legally. Um, And... uh, as I've discovered, coming out of my sheltered uh, military background, um, and certainly as we found in the last leadership election for the Conservative Party, uh, every single candidate had a story to tell about having done something illegal around drugs at some point. Um, And to that extent, elected politicians' experience reflects that of the general public. Um, A vast majority of people will have done an illegal drug at some point, at some time in their lives. Um, And... Uh, for politicians, they will then feel that that disqualifies them um, from engaging in a conversation about drugs policy. Uh, which is why I, my advice to my colleagues is um, we need to accept that as a collective, our personal experience reflects that of the people we represent, which means that the majority of us will have done something illegal. Um, if we then, uh, if that then means that we don't engage in a conversation about this, um, then uh, for fear of the tabloid headline you know, pointing out that you've, you've done, uh, committed a crime in the past, um, uh, then we are one of the reasons we get nowhere um, in terms of an intelligent uh, reassessment of our policy in this area. So my advice, colleagues, is we should collectively accept that uh, our experience reflects out of the public, and individually decline to answer the question. Because if I answer the question and go, well, I haven't done anything, so I'm entitled to discuss it. I then take all my colleagues who have done something illegal um, out of the game of being able to discuss it. That doesn't help. So uh, the best thing to do is not answer the question, Um, because it is much too important as a public policy issue. The consequences of this policy are so catastrophic. Um, The number of people who are dying, the number of people who are are ill, the number of crimes that are being committed, the the, uh, uh, corruption that is uh, inevitably uh, engaged when you've got this amount of money, swilling around in an industry uh, that then has the money to buy officials, to buy policemen, to buy weapons, to buy armies um, in order to defend their, uh, their interests around, around the world. Um, we need a proper conversation um, and we frankly don't need the sort of tittle-tattle about individual politicians um, whose life, strange enough, reflects the people they represent, most of whom will have dabbled in drugs in one form or another um, in the course of their lifetime what David Cameron calls the normal university experience um, uh, and that should not put them uh, beyond the should not disqualify people from and our responsibility for properly considering uh, public policy in this area.
0: Yeah, amen, that's great. So what would you say if people would say to you, well, you must not be very conservative because you know conservative policy is you know a hardline stance on. Prohibition. I had somebody um, say that to me early on when I was started talking about this more publicly, and they said, "I'm not sure you're conservative anymore if you're if you're changing your mind on this." What What would you say? How do you see it as consistent with conservative values?
1: Well, uh, um, I think a, a conservative, certainly in the, in the British sense, um, wants to proceed uh, carefully on the basis of evidence, and if the case for change has been made. Um, Uh, as I think it was said by one of our uh, political philosophers of the late 18th century, a society without the capacity for change is a society that that, um, cannot survive. Um, And we have to uh, progress, but Conservatives will want the evidence. Um, uh, It may be that our starting position is that of the Duke of Wellington, uh, who was the Prime Minister, um, say Britain's most successful general, who was then the Prime Minister in the run-ins the great reform act in 1832 when our electoral system was uh, uh uh began a sort of proper pathway to uh, the, the democracy we we know today um reform reform aren't things bad enough already um that might be a conservative starting point um but if then convinced that uh the case for reform and change is going to be overwhelmingly uh, better than the conditions you've got now then conservatives. Uh, we want to accept that case for reform. Not, we're not in the business of progress in that sense for progress' sake, um of, that everything can always be improved. We value the traditions and we value uh, uh, what we have, um, but we accept that uh, all things can be improved and we should have an open mind and proceed on the basis of the evidence in, in considering uh, how we can make things better. Not just for change, not change for change's sake, but change where it's necessary. And anyone reviewing the impact of the world's approach to drug policy can hardly come to a conclusion that this is an outstanding policy success. It is quite the reverse. It is a policy, a global policy catastrophe of epic proportions. It may be true. It may be. I don't believe it for one moment that it's impossible to do this better. Um, But it is so bad. It is certainly worth giving it active consideration.
0: Yeah, uh, one of the um, people I talked to recently is a father who lost his son to a heroin overdose. And I was asking him, you know, what he thought about people are afraid of change. They're afraid that things will get worse um, if we legalize and regulate. And he said, getting worse, all, all of our worst fears have come true under prohibition. People are dying yes. at really high rates. People are in prison. People are addicted. People are, there's crime everywhere. Everything we're afraid of is already here. And it's actually caused by prohibition. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I hadn't really heard anybody put it that way before that, that all the things we're afraid of, we're living with right now.
1: Yes. And, and, uh, and they are caused by prohibition. The tragedy, turn it around heroin, for example, is that the, American moralistic approach that led to the prohibition of alcohol, which was then translated to narcotic drugs in 1961, that the American approach eclipsed what was then called the British approach in the 1960s, where the, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, the American approach took over um, from 1971 onwards, when we passed the Misuse of Drugs Act here. That until then, if you had a heroin uh, uh, addiction, you could go to your doctor, and you could get a prescription for your heroin, and you could obtain your heroin legally, and you could be maintained in your heroin habit. And if you were maintained in your heroin habit um, uh, under a, a medical supervision, you could hold down your job, you could look after your children, you could look after your home, um, and you could, to all intents and purposes, live a normal life. Um, In 1971, there were 1,049 registered heroin addicts in the UK. And then the Misuse of Drugs Act, 1971, took away the ability of doctors largely to prescribe heroin to people in their circumstances. And in the course of the next 20 years, um, when people got into trouble with heroin, uh, they found the best way to uh, obtain the resources to manage their habits would be to shoot up with their mates and then become their mates' supplier. And if you could find five or six people to shoot up with, that, that paid for your habit. And of course, those five or six people then found uh, uh, people to go and shoot up with, and they became their supplier. And we delivered the most motivated pyramid sales force in history. And we saw 1,049 addicts over the course of the next 20 years go to 350,000. Um, and at the bottom of that pyramid, all the people who couldn't find people to get and shoot up with because they were, um, uh, their, their circumstances were, uh, were such or they were in such a terrible state. So what do they do? They steal. That's half of acquisitive crime in the UK. That is a public policy disaster.
0: Yes. So paint the picture for people about what, so if we're already living with all of this harm, Um, what would the world look like if we legalized? What do you think, if you could help people kind of see the world as you see it, as we don't know exactly what would happen, we can look at where the harm is coming from and say, we think a lot of this harm would end if we ended prohibition. What's the world that you see out in front of us that um, would be far better? What does that world look like?
1: Well, no one is suggesting um, that you take a highly efficient, free market in drugs, which is this now, which happens to be entirely criminally supplied. And in London, it said, um, uh, you can probably get cocaine delivered to your door faster than you get a pizza um, because the supply chain is that efficient. Uh, uh, no one is suggesting that we replace that. We're going to go down to your local supermarket and buy whatever drug you like sitting on the shelves. Um, no one would think that is a sensible way to proceed. However, we have done it significantly with alcohol alcohol is a licensed and regulated drug in the united kingdom if you try to sell it to a child and someone under 18 your entire business is imperiled because you will lose your license to sell alcohol um and there are we impose hours on pubs when they can a license to sell alcohol on uh on off license premises where at the times of day people can get and buy alcohol and the rest um, and we tax it, and we uh, obviously uh, what we've done is that the legal supply chain of alcohol, a uh, bunch of businesses who are desperate to be uh, reputable and to produce the highest, compete on the quality of their product um, with uh, uh, with other businesses, um, are obviously employing people in a way that are then regulated under appropriate employment conditions, and they're being paid properly and looked after properly. The people who work in those industries. Um, and they're making their contribution to society through taxation, and then we level a special fiscal tax on top of that as well, um, uh, on, on top of normal uh, excise tax uh, in the UK. So, uh, and in terms of illegal drug, uh, of illegal drug tobacco and the nicotine contained in it, um, those fiscal taxes are, are very, very substantial indeed. As so we've fought a long battle over the public health messaging around smoking. Uh, But there is no criminal supply chain, um, uh, except in prisons, of course, um, around alcohol. Uh, Of course, in prisons, it's prohibited. And there you do have an illegal supply chain of alcohol, uh, with prisoners um, choosing to distill their own hooch from the fruits they might have in their cell and everything else in order to to produce alcohol. Um, But what you want to move is not to have a... Criminally supplied free market, or a, uh, a free market where things are freely available so in shops, you want to go to the middle position where you would have the state setting the regulations and the license conditions and the taxation on, uh, uh, on uh, uh, narcotic drugs that are relevant to the danger those drugs uh, present. And then you're dealing with it as a public health issue. And uh, if people are sufficiently determined to get a particular drug, then no doubt they will. However, uh, as long as you don't set uh, taxation and license conditions that are so tough, they effectively amount to prohibition, um, uh, you will largely eliminate the criminal supply chain. And if there is no criminal supply chain, because it's not worth people's while engaging in crime to supply a drug that people can get legally, uh, albeit under uh, conditions set by the state, uh, people will then know what they're getting they will be uh held responsible uh, for their actions if they um as we do now for drink driving and arrest if you if you uh, do something under the influence of a of a drug and then you uh, hurt someone else um or potentially hurt someone else um, uh, you will be punished and indeed people get sent to prison for 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 uh, for drink driving um quite uh uh, quite rightly, whether they've been reckless with other people's safety. Um, but they're responsible for their, own, uh, for their own safety. And strangely enough, um, you can then, in those circumstances, get a clear public health message across to people about the dangers of the uh, substance they're consuming. And we've done this around smoking. It's taken a long time but because within cigarettes is nicotine, which is, the, as I understand it, the most addictive drug of all. So it's very, very difficult to get off. Now, nicotine itself doesn't do you a great deal of harm. Um, but obviously, combusting in your lungs is a really daft thing to do. And uh, certainly it's welcome uh, uh, here in the UK to see a very substantial fall in the amount of smoking uh, over the years. And the only danger is that we tax it at such a high rate. that, that is then, uh, uh, There is an element of a criminal supply chain uh, getting around the taxation on cigarettes, which is so which is obviously astronomic but but so intended to serve as its own as its own deterrent uh, but you know we've been by treating it as a public health issue, we have been able to get the message across by and large to people that um, smoking is seriously damaging to your health and and being able to explain why and the, uh, and the rest um, uh, so if you get to a place where um People know what they're doing, they uh, are going to be responsible for their actions and able to make their own appreciation of risk. And you eliminate, as far as so far as you reasonably can, you should be able to, the criminal supply chain, then people will know what they're getting. And the tragedy in the UK, there's a group called Anyone's Child of kids who have gone to music festivals and, and the like and taken what they thought was MDMA and then discovered that either you know, that it wasn't MDMA at all, maybe based on other with other things and has become for some children, a lethal, a lethal drug. And they have then uh, died as a consequence um, or because they wanted to dance um, through the music possible. So. Um, uh, and those are some of the saddest cases of all, where uh, prohibitions had its effect, um, not of changing the demand, But the meaning that the drugs people think they're taking, they're not taking, they're taking something quite different. Um, And in some circumstances, it's quite different, they kill them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's such a um, tragedy that we often think of that then, if we don't take that step back and think what caused that we think, well, MDMA killed them, but it's not MDMA, it's
1: it's, Either, it's something produced, it's cooked, something, cooked up by yeah, someone who doesn't it, know what they're doing, and not, in premise right. under supervision, where they don't know what they're doing. They might, might think they're, uh, they may be trying to lace it with something that's going to make people come back for more. Um, so they made it uh, much more addictive than, than it would otherwise be. Um, who knows? Um, hmm. uh but but certainly the. Uh, Maybe there will be some dealers who have some interest in a second sale. There'll be others who will be sufficiently desperate. Um, they don't care what happens to their customer. Mm.
0: That's
1: the last of their considerations.
0: Right. Yeah. So much overdoses caused by prohibition, not by the actual yeah. substance. And it's all
1: and all as a product of, uh, of prohibition, which has driven this business uh, underground. And that makes it yeah. very much more difficult to protect people. And if we treat people um, uh, maturely as able to uh, take a decision for themselves whether to uh, use uh, any drug, um, people are by and large able to make intelligent decisions about what suits their circumstances and most people are not going to want to put themselves in a place where they uh, become addicted to, uh, to any particular drug and then find that their freedom of action has been overtaken. Uh, some people will get it wrong, as we see with alcohol. Um, but it is infinitely better to be able to treat people of illegal drug alcohol, and if they get if they get addicted, than if they are um, addicted to a drug we have chosen to make illegal. And uh, if one examines the situation in London, for example, um, uh, someone had done a study of a hundred homeless people, um, rough sleepers, uh, in the area around Victoria in London. And there was a 100% association um, between rough sleeping and addiction. Uh, Where that addiction was to alcohol, you could house them and then uh, try and treat and support them to manage their alcoholism. Um, Or, uh, obviously in the best of circumstances, get clean. Uh, But if their addiction is to a drug that is illegal and you give them housing, then you have suddenly invited Um, almost certainly illegal activity in your premises, and you will find you have to throw them back out onto the street again. And you've made it, by making the drug illegal, you've made it impossible to treat.
0: Yeah. Uh, So many problems that come from uh, prohibition. If uh, people want to learn more about Mr. Blunt's work outside of uh, parliament he started um, is the, um, one of his brainchilds is the conservative drug policy reform group. Uh, you can Google that and it'll come right up. And Mr. Blunt, thank you so much for joining us today. So many great points. One of my favorite of which is that drugs are in prison. So the, the, very, the very tool that we have been using to try to fight drugs um, is the place you can get drugs. Uh, some people will say most easily because they're just right there at your cell. Um, because the underground market operates everywhere, even inside of our prisons, um, we we cannot we can't keep drugs out of the world. But we can have policy that is that middle ground. I love the way you put that. We're we're not saying prohibit, and we're not saying candy aisle. We're saying there's a third way. We can legally regulate yeah. and we can reduce harm.
1: And that's you know, and that should be that ought to be the public policy objective, is uh, to reduce harm to our society. What we're certainly clear about is the world now. Um, uh, is uh, in a place where enormous harm has been done by drugs policy um, to people. And uh, there's a better way of doing this.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Mr. Blaine.
1: Not at all, Chris. It very nice talk to you. Bye for
0: now. This movement isn't just here in Mississippi. It's not just in the South or in the United States. There's a global movement growing across party lines and across the world to pursue alternatives to criminalizing drugs so that we can stop paying such a steep human cost. Even though the podcast is pausing for now, the work continues more than ever. Let's do this. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.